Maybe it's not <clears throat> good for the preacher to be emotional before he gets started. I just love that, that video and the, the artistry that conveys such a vivid picture and the words that are communicated that so powerful. All we have is Christ. Hmm. Last week, Pastor John led us in the significance and the reality that the best is yet to come. This is our ultimate hope and our confidence for all of us. Just this week, I had an opportunity to have dialogue with an individual that I'd never met before, and for a variety of reasons, he was concerned about the state of affairs and where we are in this country. I was encouraged that to some extent, he understood and was looking forward to the best that is yet to come. But I was also a little discouraged that he seemed to not really grasp the significance that to live is Christ. Pastor John helped us to see last week that to die is certainly to gain. That our desire should be to be with Christ, yet we are content to be here. Not the other way around. Paul desired more to be with Christ, but he also firmly believed that if God willed for him to live, he would pour his heart and soul into living for Christ. When it comes to purpose and life, it's an inherent desire in mankind to want to know that purpose. Take, for example, Tom Brady himself on this Super Bowl Sunday. Even after what has been arguably the greatest accomplishments that many men could ever dream of, he's been quoted as saying, it's got to be more than this. What about believers in Christ? What is our purpose? What should it be? In our passage today, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, Paul will communicate with force one of the primary answers to that question. Simply stated, the Christian's life should reflect a desire to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether it is Tom Brady or any other successful individual, they all will inevitably discover, as King Solomon stated, that life is vanity in the pursuit of the pleasures of this world. As we know, it is vanity, it is worthless without Christ. All we have is Christ, as the song communicated. As for those of us who are Christ followers, we all would affirm this purpose to be counted as worthy. However, it's one thing to repeat the words, to live as Christ. It's another to understand what it means and then seek to apply it. To do it. As for its meaning, four characteristics from our passage today, will help us to answer the question, what does a life worthy of Christ 
look like? Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You may be seated. If I get a little amped up, I've got water with me here today. Keep my voice going. Our first characteristic is a courageous heart of obedience. With the beginning of this paragraph, we come to the first command of the letter. In many respects, it will serve as a bold, foundational charge from which the encouragements and the foundations that we've discussed flow forth. In the midst of a culture centered upon the gospel of Caesar, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Sound familiar? Paul seems to have somewhat of an affinity for words such as this. He uses it in two of his other prison epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. This command to conduct yourselves carries the idea of an obligation to others. Or to state it literally, to live as a citizen. Within the context of their Roman colony, the word would have carried added significance. The church is being commanded to live as citizens of heaven, if you will. This is not to say that they were to disregard their Roman citizenship, but the emphasis is upon their spiritual citizenship. We will see more about this, and I cannot wait to get there, on Easter Sunday in Philippians chapter 3. Just so happens to be that that will be the passage that we will preach on on that day. Furthermore, I don't want you to miss and take note of the simple use of the adjective only when he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We began this series with the argument that the gospel of Christ and the fellowship of Christ are two primary foundations of the letter. Most certainly, Paul's emphasis upon this first command and connection to the gospel of Christ continues to illustrate this. Regarding those foundations, by now, hopefully you recall the second one that we discussed, which was the fellowship of Christ. 
Hopefully, we are constantly being challenged to live with the body and mind and not solely as individuals. This is exactly what Paul was communicating to the church here as well. Citizens of heaven should be always opposed to living life solely from an individual perspective. The charge is to think corporately with a priority upon the centrality of the gospel. He goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. To live as citizens of heaven within a Roman colony would have certainly required courageous obedience. Although at the same time, a citizen of heaven requires a heart of obedience. We know from the, the, the sequential chapter of chapter 2, verse 12, as well as in previous context in 124, that Paul desired to be with this church, but was not always able to do so. However, we still spoke, he still spoke in glowing terms of the fellowship of Christ, their heart obedience that this church exhibited. In verse 5, you might recall, we talked about their participation in the gospel. Or in verse 7, how they were partakers of grace with him. Paul spoke of this same type of heart obedience apart from being in the midst of of Paul or others in Christ in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 6 he said slaves be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ not by way of eye service as people pleasers but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart so In response to our question, what does a life worthy of Christ look like? Allow me to wrap it up with a bow and tie it with a 21st century application, if you will. In a world that continues to gain steam in challenging one's obedience to Christ and His Word, would we be so courageous to stand united as one? Would we be willing to say as Peter did in Acts chapter 5, that I will obey God rather than man? Or in a world where worldly citizenship is constantly evaluated by others or even the state, Would we, as citizens of heaven, have the attitude of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he said, but to me it is insignificant matter that I would be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. However, I am not vindicated by this, but the one who examines me is the Lord. This command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ 
is weighty indeed. A courageous heart of obedience is going to be essential for us as it was for the church at Philippi. Our second characteristic is a courageous pursuit of unity. What specifically does Paul want to hear about when it comes to this command? He first states that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. The word standing firm here is one that carries in a military sense of soldiers in battle. Perhaps there are many pictures that come to mind that we consider that give us a description of what that might look like. Many of us here are probably more than likely not familiar with the men of the 77th Division from World War I. They were often referred to as the Lost Battalion. Listen to this historical account of standing firm. I think it provides a bridge for us to a spiritual application. On the week of October 2nd, 1918, some 554 men of the U.S. 77th Division were surrounded by German troops when the French forces on their flank were stopped, leaving them isolated. Wishing to restore this hole in their lines, the Germans attacked the Americans for six days. Almost two-thirds of them became casualties. Despite this, and shortages of food, water, and ammunition, the Americans stood firm until other Allied attacks forced a German retreat, relieving the beleaguered soldiers. The picture of a unit of soldiers making their last stand certainly provides for a vivid illustration. However, the stand here for us is for another pursuit. Would we be found standing in that type of capacity looking towards a courageous pursuit for unity? The church would have received these words as a charge for a firm conviction conviction with a resolute desire to be one. This idea of one spirit and one mind, Paul will further elaborate on in our passage next next week in Philippians Philippians chapter 2. We will see more of that next week. Here we can see that the terms are synonymous in illustrating this courageous pursuit of unity. The word mind here is actually translated from the word soul. We might say that with all of our heart and soul, we will stand firm pursuing courageously unity. As I alluded to, there's perhaps no better example of that found in Philippians chapter 2, when it comes to oneness. That being said, I can't let all the cats out of the bag. I need to leave you waiting for something for next week. However, allow me to offer you one example of this. 
what this might look like for us from one of Paul's other prison epistles, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He writes, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you might say, what does that look like for me, Pastor John? Well, I might begin with what it does not mean. This is not a charge for us to put aside fundamental essentials of the faith in order that we might look as though we are united as one. Biblical unity has nothing to do with attempting to please the world or the masses. We see this far too often in modern day Christianity. Let it be said of us here at Miriam Christian Chapel that we will not be found violating the word of God in the pursuit of unity. Whatever that might look like, joining with false churches, clear violations of commandments from Scripture. However, on the positive side of that response, we would do well to remember in our hearts, to hide in our hearts that phrase from Ephesians 4.12, showing tolerance for one another in love. Are there times within this body, within the body as a whole, that we are frustrated with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course. We all still wrestle with the flesh. We all fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, could we at times, when appropriate, show tolerance for one another in love? Maybe at times the frustration warrants speaking in truth, in love to that individual. However, you would be surprised how often the showing of tolerance in love is a greater benefit to the church as a whole as we pursue unity courageously together. Easier said than done, huh? But let it never be an excuse for us. We are a people that desire to pursue courageously unity here at MCC. That's my heart and prayer. We will fall short, but by God's grace, we can overcome. Our third characteristic is a courageous defense of the gospel. Take a look at the end of verse 27 and 28. We read, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. We communicated from the beginning that this epistle 
is sort of a treatise, if you will, of successful Christian living. If we are to be found worthy, then a courageous defense of the gospel will be evident in our lives. The verb here states that we are to strive continually and together in that defense. Paul again communicates with this sense of battle, contending against opposition, fighting together for the faith of the gospel. Now, you all know my affinity for sports. I can't begin to list all of the experiences that I've had as a competitor, as a coach, when it comes to contending against opposition. The camaraderie, the energy, all of it in a pursuit hungry to win. Second to none. However, I have a question for myself and for you. How often does this type of attitude permeate our souls as it pertains to fighting together for the gospel? Do we desire to stand before our Lord and to be counted as worthy? This is certainly a piece of this God-given worthwhile endeavor. Now, in some sense, we know that Romans chapter 6 is going to affirm to us that we have already been counted as worthy. If you are in Christ, you have been crucified with him, no longer a slave to sin. Although what else does Romans chapter 6 communicate? In verses 1 and 2, it reads, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It is because of this truth that we have been crucified with Christ that we cannot help but desire to be counted worthy of the gospel of Christ. And once again, you might be asking, what does that look like, practically speaking? How can we strive together for the faith of the gospel? Within this letter, we see how the church, in some respects, was striving together from a financial perspective. If the answer to this question were multiple choice, that answer would be all of the above. Scripture as a whole charges us as individual believers and as a body to contend against opposition in many areas. Whether that might be corporate prayer, whether that might be an evangelistic effort as we strive together in our hearts united as one to reach for the lost with passion. More on that this summer. I have visions and goals for us as a body 
that we would be found counted as worthy pursuing the lost. Striving together or fighting together against opposition can certainly at times be intimidating. There's a sense of fear when it comes to facing a formidable opponent. We all have experienced this crippling feeling. A feeling as though we do not have the resources or the ability or the strength to win, to overcome. Whether it's sports or any life experience that involves potential conflict. A courageous defense of the gospel not only strives together against opposition, but it is not alarmed, frightened, or intimidated. Look at verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. We all can fully appreciate the strength and the power that comes from a united front. The lost battalion of World War I would never have been able to stand against the German forces without a united mind and a united front. One can certainly appreciate the courage to defend their position, the Americans, while not being intimidated by the approaching German force. In addition, one can only imagine the feeling of frustration and despair that must have been felt by the Germans as they attacked against men who stood firm, not intimidated. This natural picture is a perfect illustration of what Paul is communicating from a spiritual perspective. He says, this is a sign of destruction for them. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ actually serves as an instrument of righteousness as an aroma of death unto death. As 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 speak to. Now, of course, we desire that our courageous defense of the gospel would serve as an aroma of life unto life. However, my friends, don't ever lose sight of the holiness and righteousness of God. The sinner that continually lives according to the lust of his flesh will face judgment. Those of us that have been spared, we rejoice daily because of his mercy and forgiveness that we do not deserve. Just as the end of verse 28 states, our courage is a sign of our salvation which only comes from God. 
in the courageous defense of the gospel, the unbeliever is reminded of his eventual destruction unless he might turn from his sins, unless God might grant him repentance and faith. Now, there is a critical point that I want us to grasp here. It is a great motivator for us as we desire to be found worthy of the gospel of Christ by the grace of God. As he revealed this truth to me, my courage and defense of the gospel was strengthened like never before. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it will be the same for you. I know you are with me. I know that you desire to live this life in this manner. Paul says here that the courageous defense of the gospel is a part of that. He also says it is actually a sign to the unbeliever of their destruction. He says to them, they know it. And they understand it. Now, in light of that, what is that critical point? Listen to me. Write it down. Pay attention. It is so profound, but yet so simple. Everyone knows God. Our courage to contend against opposition and not be intimidated confirms within the unbeliever what they already know. That Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says that is it appointed unto man to die and face judgment. Whereas Romans 1 verses 18 through 20 speak to the reality that all men know God but yet choose to suppress that in unrighteousness. Or Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it speaks to the significance that the law of Christ is written upon the hearts of man. Their conscience bears witness to it. I have some evangelistic help for you. You want to be courageous in the pursuit of defending the gospel? Stand firm together for the gospel and preach Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. What often contributes to our lack of courage, a feeling of inadequacy that we don't have all the answers to the questions if you simply live and preach Christ united as a body of believers for the sake of the gospel, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 articulates, God will open blind eyes. And those that are not opened, they will experience the righteous judgment of God that they are already aware of and deserve just as each and every one of us here in this room know. Now, 
For us, we are not to be concerned with how that works or who God has chosen to save. What is our concern? We are not to be concerned with how that works. Our concern is to preach the gospel of Christ and leave the results to God. The results are in God's hands. If you embrace this truth, I believe with all my heart, we as a body will grow in our courage in defense of the gospel. Our fourth and final characteristic is a courageous acceptance. I had trouble with that word in the first service too as well. Acceptance of suffering. I stated several weeks ago that I am concerned for potential increased opposition to Christian living in the world that we live in. You might remember that I also stated, I believe that's a good thing. Let's examine Paul's thoughts in in relating to that. Look at verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experience in the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Several powerful elements of this phrase, it has been granted. The root of this word actually comes from the word rejoice. Moreover, the understanding is one where the subject receives the action. Who is the subject? The church. Who is the giver of the action? The Lord. And finally, what is that action? Suffering. You say, put that all together for me, Pastor John. I got a doozy for you. That's a Kentucky thing. (laughs) It is the gracious will of God to give with joy the gift of suffering to his church. Now, that's not going to be a mission statement in any of our motivational speaking jellyfish Christianity churches of the day and age that we live in. And if you don't understand that, the late, great J.C. Ryle coined that phrase, jellyfish don't have spines. Do you hear what God's word is saying here? A life worthy of Christ is a life that is called to suffer. The verse says it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. <laughs> this is a torpedo of annihilation when it comes to the heretical view of easy believism. 
There is absolutely no biblical evidence whatsoever that allows for a false sense of security. That I prayed a prayer long ago, yet my life reflects nothing of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm good to go. I walked the aisle and I prayed the prayer. Paul is clearly saying throughout this passage that a Christian is one that conducts himself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. When united, while defending the gospel, suffering is inevitable. Jesus confirms this himself, does he not? John chapter 15, he re- we read, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Paul further communicates this in greater detail in chapter 3, verse 8, when he says, More than that, I count it all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Listen, I get it. I am with you. I desire comfort. I know you desire comfort. However, I'm I'm sure we all would agree that if you recall some of your past sufferings, no matter how great, no matter how small, even if you are in the midst of suffering now, you would affirm that old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. In suffering, we grow in character and perseverance. In suffering, we grow in hope. In suffering, we grow in Christ. That is exactly what Paul desired for himself and for the church at Philippi. In verse 30, he closes out this charge by way of his own example. He's already communicated in chapter 1, verse 14, that his suffering led to embolden and give more courage to others. Next week, we will see the ultimate example of that in Christ, the suffering servant, as he made himself as nothing in order that we might have the ultimate courage and the ultimate hope. As you consider your life and the benefit of suffering, allow these words from one commentator to challenge you as it did me. One of the reasons most of us in the West do not know more about the content of verses 29 and 30 is that we have so poorly heeded the threefold exhortation that precedes it. In the words of Vadi Bakram, if you can't say amen to that, say ouch. I can say ouch. If we are courageously pursuing unity, if we are courageously 
pursuing the defense of the gospel, if our hearts are courageously pursuing obedience, we will suffer. But that's a good thing. Because it is transforming and molding you more into His image. Is that not what we desire? As I close, allow me to offer two final thoughts for you. One, as your pastor. A message like this can be very convicting. I want it to be convicting. God's word is sharper, you know it, than any two-edged sword. It cuts down deep and discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That is what we should desire as men and women of God looking to be counted worthy of the gospel of Christ. However, at the same time, hear my heart. More importantly, hear God's heart for you. You can rest in the steadfast love and mercy of Christ. God did not save you to call you into a life of condemnation. But he saved you to call you to a life of obedience. If this strikes a chord and deep in your heart and soul as it does mine, and you feel the weight of falling short, repent. And trust Christ for his forgiveness of your failures and move forward in courageous pursuit of a life manner found in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. His mercy is new each and every day. Rest in that. I want you to feel the weight. We all should want to feel the weight of Scripture, to be challenged by the Word of God. But do not live in condemnation. Live in obedience. You have been redeemed. You have been reconciled by God. You have been crucified with Christ. You are no longer a slave to sin. Now, as an evangelist, if you are in this room and you've heard the courage of this church and God's word, and it is a sign of destruction to you, please, Turn from your sin before it is too late and trust in Christ. Destruction in eternity in hell awaits you. There are churches throughout the world where men and women sit in seats and when death comes, Christ will say, depart from me. I never knew you. If that is you, my heart pleads that you would turn to Christ for salvation.
even today. There are men and women in this room that love you and will come alongside you and hear your concerns. Pray with you. Taste and see that the Lord is good and His mercy restores the soul. Today can be your day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised and you know it. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, the inerrant word of God found within the 66 books of the Bible. This is our authority. This is our source for training in righteousness, for completion in every good work. Lord, I pray that you would use this word today to transform and renew our minds in the grace of God. That we as followers of Christ would be challenged to live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Lord, as we stated, if there is a soul within this room or even throughout the live stream of this service, or in hearing this in days and years to come, that they know that destruction awaits them, eternity in hell awaits them, that you would use your word as a means of an aroma of life unto life, that they might repent and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, help us as a church to be men and women passionate for this purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for our closing song?